This week on Death of the Reader, we delve into the strange world of the mystery short story. We'll speak to Professor Jack Abacassus about why you should read and think about books. And could the supernatural finally lay a hand on our blessed puzzles? All that and more, now on Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds bringing you your murder mystery world tour as we take you around the roots, inspirations, and more of all of the best detective fiction authors in history. This week, Herds, it's time to kick off with a new novel. Flex, I have been waiting for this moment. It's my time to shine, my time to solve a mystery together. <laughs> yeah, so we'll be moving over to uh, a little mystery. Was it a pun? Yes. Was that a miss pun based on the house in the mist, but the yes. mist outside the... You're awful. I am, I am. I yeah, might com- even say that joke, miss the mark. Uh, oh. We are covering House in the Mist by <laughs> Anna Catherine Green. Uh, an American author. Last week we were stuck with Emile Gaborio over in France. Stuck with? He was lovely. He was lovely. I enjoyed our, our trape through the aristocracy of uh, of France over there. I use I use stuck more in the sense that we were clinging to him fondly. I see. Yeah, we just couldn't <laughs> let go. We're like a needy a needy friend exactly. or a dog. But yeah, so Anna Catherine Green <laughs> yeah. is said by many critics to be a disciple of the Gaborio style of mm-hmm. writing. And it should be interesting to see how these influences manifest themselves in what is essentially a bunch of short stories. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know what that means to be a disciple of Emile Gaborio, but I'm looking forward to finding out. Um, it should be good. So, yeah, House in the Mist, it's a little creepy book. It comes with three stories in the edition we're covering, which we'll get to a bit later on. But right now we're covering chapter one of House in the Mist, where our yeah. protagonist... Hugh Austin mm. finds himself outside of the titular House in the Mist. Hugh Austin, who isn't actually named until the end of the first chapter, a.k.a. a quarter of the way into the novel. Which I kind of love, actually. It's fantastic. It really does leave you sitting there wondering, especially in a mystery context, like, does this guy actually have anything to do with the story? Maybe he does. His heart skips a beat at least once. I'm yeah. watching those heartbeats. My monitor is up. but yeah so it it has an incredibly creepy introduction this book it sets the tone i think wonderfully coming into it but i did not realize then as i do now that shelter does not necessarily imply refuge or i might not have undertaken this adventure with so light a heart yet who knows the impulses of an unfettered spirit lean toward daring and youth as i have said seeks the strange the unknown and sometimes the terrible. So are you suggesting to me then, Herds, that Hugh Austin knows what's about to happen? I don't think he knows what's about to happen, but if he turns out to be a ghost at the end or like really? the secret nephew, look, who knows? Who knows what he is? But there is some press and characters having changed their last names. I'm looking for it. I see. I'm watching see. out for it. All right. Yeah. I mean, we don't really cover why he's traveling. He, it's, no. It just, we begin, like, it feels halfway through the story, right? I mean, it's, it's not quite immediate res. It's not quite as drastic as that. Not everyone has, like, pulled their guns on each other yet. Shout out to Eunice. Uh, but uh, we have, you know, we've arrived in the middle of a conflict that is, you know, being resolved in this house. Um, and we know nothing. And our protagonist also supposedly knows nothing. And that gives us a, a beautiful little, um, you know, blank canvas 
to put our impressions on, you know. We also have that one weird guy who just walks out the front of the house, leaves the door open, and is like, Dude. oh, yeah, just, just head on inside. Everyone will be there soon. Best character. I hope they come back to serve who? their vampire just master. Just who is that guy? If that's, look, if that's the guy who supposedly died and he was just making sure everything was ready to go, that'd be, that'd be my favorite twist, if that's actually what happens here. All very strange. But you said you think that he might be a ghost. So are you suggesting to me look, that we are breaking one of Nox's favorite rules? Look- I would like for there to be ghosts. I think it's more likely that they all pull guns on each other and, and try to murder each other, but ghosts would be fun too. It certainly <laughs> does feel like there's something supernatural going well, there's, on. There's definitely something underneath the surface, um, that's for sure. Um, the way that the novel constructs this, uh, this locked room puzzle, but without, like, we're in the locked room. Um, there's something ethereal about being locked out from, you know, all the, the ghouls outside. That's certainly the impression that I got of the you know, the uh, the other characters who haven't made it inside being like pressed up against the doors and the windows trying to claw their way in like I mean, zombies or something. It's I great. suppose it is a locked room because the doors are locked, but yeah. I think this is more an example of a closed circle mystery. Oh, come on. Where people outside can't be involved. We have that fantastic scene where everyone everyone's like clawing at the doors trying yeah. to get in and it's like, what what is going on? It feels too late, too late. It feels more like a horror novel in that moment it's than great. it does anything else. It's well, that's that's one of the things that's really enjoyable about this this mystery. I think something that sets it apart is that usually when we get our suspects and we get our characters, like this is Jacob the vicar and this is you know Eustace the the maid, but in this it's like. There were these two men who were clearly brothers and one of them was fat and one of them was thin and they looked horrible and they were really rude. And then this old villainous man walked in with his crony eyes and his his boy slave and like, it's like all of the characters except for uh, Eunice are depicted as being villainous. And I, I think he even says that exact line. Yeah. Um, it's very different from the normal murder mystery yeah. fodder where we try and make everyone look as innocent as possible. Yes, yes, yes. It's more a case of saying everyone here is scum. What kind of awful nonsense is going to boil over from the pot? Because that's, that's the impression that I get. This is a powder cake. I definitely um, think that the portrait is the most supernatural feeling element of the story to me. Well, it's eyes follow you, apparently. Yeah, they, they keep mentioning it as though it's a character in the scene. It's always like there's one gaze in the room that yeah. wasn't moving. It's the the presence of someone behind the painting. Yeah. Dude, look, I'm just saying, if they pull that painting away and there's the old man is like standing behind it, or if he is the painting and they just don't realize... That's the twist ending that I is want. That, is that our one secret passage? That's that's the one. The passage of the painting <laughs> leading to the old man. He's sitting in his chair and he's like, you have all failed me. You were supposed to be good boys and girls and you weren't. And so I'm giving all my money to you because he's the only decent person in this, this stupid house. Yeah, <laughs> sounds, that sounds about right. And then it burns down at the end and that's the novel. I also like how much characterization we're given in such a little, like such a little time. I definitely had a doubt going into this story that we could have a compelling yeah. mystery given to us in four mm. chapters. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not to say that it's unheard of, and we've definitely spoken on previous episodes about how the mystery should ideally be constructed within the opening chapters. Yeah. But I think that the amount that we get through in this first chapter without it necessarily feeling rushed was pretty impressive. It doesn't feel clunky, and I think that the few details that I that I have noticed being particularly interesting, like the, the, the thing that Eunice is carrying and like the painting with the moving eyes, like none of those details stand out 
like except intentionally as being out of place if that makes sense mm. i feel like the novel flows pretty well from one character introduction to the next um which is really good it's paced very well yeah i mean even just some of the ways that the characterization is introduced through the observations of hugh austin like mm-hmm. when characters jump at certain words or when eunice comes in supposedly carrying something which you clearly think is a gun yes like obviously there's, or a baby it feels accurately as though Hugh Austin is in a person in a situation he has no idea what's going on and he's trying to figure it out he's along for the ride with you and I think that his perspective is very compelling because of that I just think that one of one of the best introductions is Janet Clapsaddle's introduction simply because we're introduced as family it's clearly it's a family problem and suddenly characters coming with with you know, Witherspoon and, and Clapsbell, there's only one of each of those families. Like, well, wait a second, are they are they part of this or not? I I thought it was the the Western House. Mm. I thought they were the ones that are involved in this. Um, and then Janet has this little monologue that she gives that you know cements her as one of the uh, the important people in the room. She she you know complains about um, you know being called a previous Western How, and it's it's fantastic. Just look at these little paragraphs to give you all you need to know. These little bite sized characters. It's really good. They definitely do not seem like a loving family. No, no, they're awful. <laughs> they're going to literally tear each other's throats out. It's going to happen. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, yeah, I, I think uh, <laughs> the the roundup feeling that we get from this scene as well is really interesting because yep. it certainly feels. Almost like the kind of scene you'd get at the end yes. of a normal mystery novel yes. where everyone's gathered into a room and we say, and you are the culprit. Mm-hmm. My first impression was that we were getting everyone in this room and the lawyer was just going to go, and you're all guilty. <laughs> yeah. And then we get a personal anecdote on each of their parts of the, the crime. Mm. And then and then he has to make it out alive somehow. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing your theories on this coming up a bit later in the show. Mm-hmm. But right now, we have Dr. Jack Abacassis from Pomona College in the United States on the line to talk about death of the reader. Not us, the theory. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. This is Flex and Herds, and we're joined here by Professor Jack I. Abacassis from Pomona College in the United States, an expert on French literature, and uh, the the person from which we ripped our name, Herds. What? Why would we do that? Why would you admit that on air? Come on, Flex. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Professor Jack Abacassis, welcome to the show. Hello. I'm happy to be with you. <laughs> Yeah, so our show, Death of the Reader, asks our audience to engage in puzzles and look at texts and kind of unravel them themselves with this amateur literature analysis. Obviously, people haven't read everything that's out there and people haven't engaged with every text in the field. Why should people feel confident and actively engage in doing things, even though they don't have that expertise. I know your text, Pia Bayard and Death of the Reader, which criticized a particular point of view on this, went into how people, you know, don't get to read everything. So why should they explore things that they can't have a complete understanding of? I think the most obvious reason is that uh, there are very few other activities that delight human beings as much as uh, narratives, engaging in narratives, and all the cognitive work uh, and cognitive joy that goes with uh, narrative puzzles and so on. So I think none of your readers should have any complex about uh, 
not having read everything because, first of all, for the simple reason that no one really has ever read, uh, read everything. Perhaps the last person, uh, at least in Western civilization, to have done so in a significant way is Leibniz, and that dates us back to the 18th century. So every um, so-called expert in literature is somebody who has tapped into a certain vein and knows and understands and is familiar with the major arguments in that vein. So let's call it Shakespeare's studies or Cervantes' studies and so on. Um, and that's about it. Um, and in that sense, a literary training is not that different than training in, in engineering. When you study engineering, you do not study how to solve each and every possible problems. You basically learn how to solve problems, giving general principles of mechanics and physics and so on. And so that I think that anybody who is literate uh, and who is interested in narrative is perfectly capable of engaging with literature in a very meaningful way. How in fields that are increasingly saturating content can we distinguish between uh, nodes and hubs and ensure we're not just becoming inundated with noise? Yeah, no. So this is um, one uh, criticism that I had of this uh, book by Pierre uh, Bayard, mm. which is simply that he has a very... Um, let's call it a very naive idea of how uh, network theory works. So uh, I think the easiest way for your uh, listeners perhaps is to think about the systems of airports in Australia. And um, without knowing the details, I assume that you have two or three major airports and let's call them hubs. And those hubs are basically uh, send out spokes to smaller cities. Well, this is how all networks work. Um, and therefore, uh, when, uh, when you study literature, what you really want to, to understand in any given field is what is the hub and what are the spokes. The, the, the key to understanding uh, the question of quantity in literature, the immensities of libraries, the immensities of catalog, is to understand that in, in all the millions of books out there, there are very, very few books that actually make any difference. And what's important when you get an education is for you in any field, so for example, you guys talk about detective novels, is to recognize what are the 50 most important detective novels, let's say, in a given period or in a given culture, and to become familiar with that. Reading the other 10,000 very minor detective novels is, uh, is not something that is really going to illuminate you. In that case where we have certain novels that you say aren't as illuminating and won't teach you much, as much about a subject as other novels in the field, you know, how do we ensure that those novels out there that do have you know, the miracle cure hidden in them aren't uh, just lost amongst the noise because they're not found as people mainly stick to the 50 best things in a genre. Right. So, I mean, this is just an ongoing process. And by the way, the way that we think about those um, very important novels changes over time. And it's not something that is understood and fixed once and for all. So every culture uh, has an idea of what those books are. And basically the role of people such as yourselves is to 
kind of modulated for people in the genres that you work in. Um, and so a show such as yourself, in fact, you're there in a way to kind of sift through certain type of books and then see how that resonates with your uh, listeners. And I think in this dialogue between you, the sifters, and the, your, uh, your audience, um, there is some kind of a consensus as to what counts. That's exactly how literary canons come about. Well, thank you for the vote of confidence. Uh, we, we appreciate it over here in 2SCR, uh, Death of the Reader. But uh, I, I think it's very interesting you talk about how uh, our job, the job of academics and, and scholars, is to sift through information to find uh, relevant texts. Uh, but with the presence of, of social media, Facebook and Twitter, where we're almost being told uh, what other readers are engaging in, how has that changed the playing field when it comes to finding uh, relevant information? God, that's that's a huge question. Uh, <laughs> we are some hard questions. That is a huge question. I I think that you have to look at it dialectically. You have to see what is positive. I think that on the very positive side, social media allows readers to become very active uh, in terms of interacting with books and authors and so on and give them feedback in real time. Mm. Uh, I, I imagine that the negative side of it is that um, this kind of uh, mimetic contagion that goes on, things become hot um, and so on and so forth. But I, I tend to believe that if the influencer, let's say, recommends a book that does not truly resonate and does not have real intrinsic quality, it'll be like a quick brush fire. Mm. Whereas the books that tend to uh, be more beefy and more interesting will, will endure much longer. It does not change the basic mechanism. It's always been that way. I think one thing that's particularly interesting for us where, where the golden age of detective fiction was so long ago before so many of these structures for information transfer uh, were developed, we can look at authors like Emile Gabario and Anna Catherine Green and see there's a direct line of influence between them where that can be a lot harder to spot in the modern sphere where there's so many more things to be influenced by. For us, looking at Anna Catherine Green, an American author inspired a lot by the styles and romanticisms and kind of uh, performative-like structures that Gaborio and similar writers back in the era of the uh, feuilleton, I believe it's called, those uh, serial releases, how, how is that kind of segmented and uh, serially released structures of French storytelling from the 20th and uh, 19th centuries influenced modern American writing today? So I think that that's, that's very important to understand. All uh, French novels, uh, at least in the, yeah, basically from Balzac onward, for the vast majority of them, they were always serialized. And that's how actually they gain readership. Once people read the serial um, installments, they then spend the money to get the whole book and just have uh, the ability to read it um, in one shot. The relationship between American literature and French literature is not a one-way thing. If we go to film noir, which is kind of a cousin, a cinematic cousin to detective stories, um, if you look at American film noirs of the 19, let's say the late, the middle 40s to the late, uh, to the mid 50s, that those movies had tremendous influence on the French new wave of cinema. By the way, it was the same thing in the history of the novel. Um, the, the novel until about the 18th century was a very minor uh, genre, and then the British started, let's say, with Stern and Fielding, starting to write very serious uh, novels, which then influenced the French. 
the French would influence the British, the German, and so on and so forth. All these cultures were always talking to each other. I mean, if you just think about the history of cinema, we're talking about 100 years or 120 years. It's a very short period of time. And even within that short period of time, we see a number of cross currents that are fertilizing each other. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating seeing how that kind of network theory parallels what we were talking about earlier. And um, I suppose that's something that's very prevalent through anything that has influences like media does. But either way, thank you very much for joining us, Jack. It's been an absolute Mm -hmm. pleasure having you on the show. Um, And thank you so much for putting Death of the Reader to paper because that's what (laughs) gave us what we are today. The most important thing, thank you, the most important thing, the reader is not dead. Always remember there are more people reading books today than ever before. There are more people going to the opera today than ever before. There are more people engaged in culture today than ever before. And so all of these um, catastrophic uh, sounding statements about the death of cultures are really misplaced in my opinion. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. That's almost part of the reason I chose the name for the show is that it's it's almost making fun of the people that say culture is dead where really we're just saying that we're a show about murder mystery. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. This is Death of the Reader. We are discussing House in the Mist, and that was Jack Abacassis from Promoter College in the United States. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are flexing herds. Thank you to Paul Meter for these lovely tunes behind us, accurately capturing the mysterious moods of our novel today, House in the Mist by Anna Catherine Green. We are covering just chapter one because it's a very short story. Yeah. It's nice for a change. It's nice to have a little laid back episode where there's no pressure on you to solve everything. You know, it's just nice and chill. <laughs> nice and easy, I'd say. You I'd think say. you're getting out of this without trying to solve it, Herds? No, I never said that. I'll give it my darndest, I will. All right. We yeah, are discussing, as I said, chapter one and Herds with just the information presented in chapter one. You are challenged to try and figure out what is going on here. Who okay. is the culprit? Is there a culprit? I think that everyone will be the culprit by the end. Really? But yes. I think I stand by what I said, that there was an old man who died, but he might be alive. That's the that's the part I'm kind of if you want. But he's laid down this will that's like, everybody who is related to me, come into the house, and there I will decide who gets the fortune. And then they, the, the lawyer's going to roll out the little bit of document and it's going to say, the last person alive gets all the money or like the, the person who spends the night or maybe it's split between the group of them. That would actually make the most sense now I think about it. You know, <laughs> They're like, here's like a million dollars and there's like eight of you in there because we, we do see that they all have a, like a frown on their face as each mm. person moves into the house. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was uh, that was the agreement that – of all the people who come into the house, they like split it that number of ways. Well, that definitely um, would explain the rapidity with which the yes, others claw at the that, doors. That's that's the one I'm gonna. That's the theory I'm gonna go with in terms of how the money is be handed out. Which obviously, you know, it doesn't directly say you must kill each other, but it says, all right, the more people are in the house when you know dawn comes, the less money I'm gonna get. So there's some reason to start murdering people. And out of all of the people in in the house. Uh, Eunice stands out to me as being the most suspicious. I see. So you think that the murder in this murder mystery is yet to happen? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Whether it's going to be an actual murder in in this part of the story, or whether the old man was murdered, we're trying to figure that out. Um, which is also which is also something that's crossed my mind. Um, it's really one chapter in, but hey, that's the fun part. 
I definitely want there to be some bickering. Like I feel like that has to be the central kind of tension or the you know, the action, sorry, of this next chapter. Um, I want to see these cousins and brothers arguing amongst themselves about who did the deed, what it was, it was her, I'm going to pin it on her. And then they say, oh no, it wasn't me. It was, it was that man over there. You know, it was, it was the old crone. It was, it was Witherspoon with his red eyes. He, he killed him with the knife. You know, he made his brothers sick. It sounds to me like you're expecting a terrible lot to happen in not very much time. I reckon you could do it pretty quick. You just got to escalate really quickly. And that'd be fun. I don't know. You've suggested that we have vampires. I think I think I can agree <laughs> with that. I think that vampires, ghosts, this definitely feels very supernatural. You don't just have a house in the mist in, you know, the mountains of Pennsylvania. It's true. Mist in the mountains, it just yeah. doesn't happen. It's not quite Transylvania, but we're close. Ah, I so see. That's what you think the, the house, reference is. Is ah. this the house of Dracula? I'm not saying it is. I can neither confirm nor deny that this is the abode of a great vampire of death who sucks people's blood. But if it was, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, to my mind, it feels as though this is more the kind of story where Smeed is the Pied Piper Mm. and we've called everyone here to, you know, play out his merry game. You think he's in charge? This is is the jigsaw type moment, right? Where, you know, the the guy in the portrait is clearly still alive Mm. and Smeed's you know, trapped him in a basement or sent him off and told him that he has friends coming over for supper and that's what he's leaving for at the start, right? Sure. He's just like, oh, yes, Mead, you can use the house for dinner. I'm just going into town for a bit. I think that if a situation like that is going on, then Smeed is is working for the man in the portrait. Really? Yeah, like, why not? Why you don't would think Smeed that, just you don't do that, think that on the his own? stern-visaged man is going to come back in and be the hero no. and stop the vile crimes of Smeed? That sounds like garbage. If that's what happens, <laughs> I throw the book out. I'm burning it. That's what's happening. Whoa. Don't burn books, kids. Don't that's burn bad. books. It's very difficult to press you for questions in this story because you well, have- a lot to work with. So little, yeah, like- yeah. You have so little material. I'm just telling you, this is the thing. This is the thing about me and the way that I like to theorize. I'm like, what is the most fun thing? Yeah. I want to see them fight. I want to see them be like, let's let's like go off in the different rooms. And then, oh no, someone's dead. It was Eunice who told them to kill that other person. I was, you know, something like that. I think that'd be fun. It'd be fun. You're time. very, very suspicious of Eunice. And I don't it seems trust her. Like, I don't know. She looks too innocent to not be evil. On the one hand, I totally agree. On the other hand, I feel as though we wouldn't have enough time to accurately explore why she is incredibly evil. I mean, why you wouldn't have any time to explore any other character? What do you mean? Why is she unique? Because she's not betrayed. Do you think we need to get character explanation? Do you think that this story is going to be about character exploration? I mean, it doesn't have to be like a character study, Uh but I think that there should be some explanation of you know why someone would commit a murder, for example. Um, and I definitely think that the theme of like, you know, this person appears to be innocent, but actually they're the, the killer the entire time. Like, I think you do that in four chapters, quick yeah, little, little yeah. side job, you know, it doesn't sound incredibly far-fetched. No, I think that's pretty fine. Um, Smeed, I don't think he's the mastermind. I don't think that's possible. He's far too like jovial and lighthearted. I think if anything, he's working for somebody else. One of the crazy things that I came up with along the way is oh, I yeah. thought here that Hugh Austin was going to end up being the mastermind. I thought we were going to uh, break Father Knox's dear rule that mm. uh, number seven, that the detective himself must not commit the crime. Uh. I mean, Austin isn't necessarily the detective, so it's a bit of a loose definition, but he has yeah. our perspective. I felt as though him being so out of place obviously felt intentional. You know, maybe the guy leaving the house at the beginning was actually uh, just a story he told to the other house guests when they showed up. Maybe. 
I, I think he's far too obviously like a blank slate character and he, he doesn't have any input. Nobody recognizes him um, unless we have a, a whole chapter explaining, you know, makeup. Like if we had a paragraph in the first chapter that was, let me tell you about how this character is a makeup artist and they, you know, they work in a traveling circus or whatever and they can tell you, this is how I made this person look like a completely different person. You know what? I even turned a man and I made them look like a woman, you know, some crazy nonsense like that. Then maybe, but- Nobody recognizes him. They yeah. say, you know, maybe he's part of one of those other families, but even Smee doesn't seem to recognize him. I mean, my thought there was that maybe Smee had been paid off. Maybe. That was my original thought. I mean, it wouldn't be terribly difficult to pay Smee off. Let's be real. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't seem like he's a particularly upright guy other no. than what's on the piece of paper he's been paid to read out. I, I definitely agree with that. I think that the the chances of Smee being an accomplice of some sort are very high. Um what if there's a Eunice, a Eunice Smead corporate theory? Ah, I see. A Unide theory, if you will. It's so fascinating how many questions this story sets up in its first chapter yeah. without actually telling you what those questions are. Yeah. And I think, Herds, I'm definitely impressed with some of your reasoning here. Good. I'm glad. Very disappointed in other parts. Look, you win some, you lose some, but I'm going to win this one. Look, I still have one more part one more week to solve this plenty of time that's right but in fact next week you also have to solve an additional story (sighs) my friend next week as well as chapter two of house in the mist we'll be covering one of the other short stories in this little tome here tell me more what is it called the ruby and the cauldron the ruby and the cauldron yes they're both important then i'll keep an eye on them i think you should i think you should just like you should keep an eye on the house in the mist Either way, thank you for joining us here on Death of the Reader this week. Yeah, it's been great being here. I'm going to solve it this time, I ladies hope and gentlemen. So. You currently have no points standing. I need to get a point. Sean Britton took all of your points he did. a he few weeks ago. Me. He ruined me completely, and I'm left with nothing but the clothes on my back and the fight and the spirit in my heart. And by golly gee, I'm going to get him back. We've been flexing hers. This was Death of the Reader on 2SCR.